Our scripture lesson for today, there are actually two. The other one I'll read toward the end of my message. But our primary scripture lesson is from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55, beginning with verse 1. And some of this scripture lesson you'll recognize because we sang about it in our second hymn. So hear this again, these words from Isaiah chapter 55, and we'll begin reading with verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirst, come to the waters, and you that have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. See, I made him a witness to the peoples. A leader and commander for the peoples. See, you shall call nations that you do not know. And nations that do not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We began this current Lenten series on the gifts of the dark wood on Sunday, March the 10th. And on that first Sunday in Lent, we considered the gift of temptation. Jesus was tempted by the Satan or the adversary not to use power to advance evil's agenda, but to accomplish good in a way other than God's way, less than the best. And we spent some time talking about that, how temptation is not always between good and evil, but it's between good and the best. And then last Sunday, we thought about the dark woods gift of uncertainty. Be careful around those folks who think they've got God all figured out. Those who have demystified the deity. It's in those moments, those times of struggle and doubt and uncertainty that the Holy Spirit often comes to walk beside us, to nudge us in the way we should go. Clueless moments become what Eric Allens in his book has called sweet spot moments. The Old Testament patriarch Abram, later known as Abraham, was our poster child last week for the topic of uncertainty. And today, the third Sunday in Lent, we'll spend some time talking about the dark wood gift of emptiness. But I want to begin with a quote from the Protestant reformer Martin Luther talking about emptiness. This quote came to mind and I found it. God created the world out of nothing, Luther said, and as long as we are nothing, God can make something out of us. Now I'm still wrestling with that. I'm still not sure what to make of that statement. And I just wanted all of you to be unsure with me, so uh, <laughs> think about it and then let me know what you, what you decide. All right, then, before we explore this gift of 
So I want to share a few more thoughts out of Barbara Brown Taylor's book. I mentioned her book last week, Learning to Walk in the Dark. She's written several books. She's an Episcopal priest and a professor and just an incredibly insightful woman of faith. Um, So a few things from her book to start with. And after all, it's in the dark wood where these gifts are to be found. So learning to walk in the dark. In the introduction to that book, she said, since I have spent at least half my life in church, I'm especially aware of how many Christians are looking into the dark right now. Attendance is down. Debt is up. Plenty of smaller churches are closing or at least putting their buildings up for sale. All the divine energy seems to be going to the southern hemisphere, leaving the old-timers up north with a bad case of solar affective disorder. Learning to walk in the dark is an especially valuable skill for people like these, or maybe I should say remembering how to walk in the dark, for these folks often have been a part of the faith for a long time. They have deep pockets of wisdom, and they know how to walk and to work and to get things done in the wilderness. We just forgot, most of us, once we got where we were going and the glory days began, the remembering takes time, like straightening a bent leg, she says, and waiting for the feeling to return. This cannot be rushed, no matter how badly you want to get where you're going, no matter what your next step is. Step one of learning to walk in the dark is just to give up running the show. Oh, goodness, that's hard for some folk. Hard for me some days. Next, you sign the waiver that allows you to bump into some of the things that frighten you at first. Finally, you ask the darkness to teach you what you need to know. Meanwhile, she said, here's some good news you can use. Even when the light fades and the darkness fails, as it does every single day and every single life, God does not turn the world over to some other deity. Even when you cannot see where you're going and no one answers you when you call out, this is not sufficient proof that you are alone. There's a divine presence that transcends all your ideas about it along with your language when you call out to it and which is not above use in darkness as the wrecking ball to destroy all of your false gods. And that's another one I had to think about, but that one came, I think I understand some of that. Darkness is the wrecking ball that destroys all of our false gods. But whether you decide to trust the witness of those who have gone before you or decide to, whatever it takes to make a witness of yourself, here's a testimony of faith, she said. Darkness is not dark to God. The night is as bright as the day. One of my all-time favorite hymns begins with the lyrics, Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Darkness and light. We are not surprised, are we, that the God, our God, who provides banquets in the wilderness, can also give us gifts in the darkness. Now back to today's gift. According to to the writer of the book that we based some of this on, Eric Allen, he said, The dark wood gift of emptiness brings us straight to a place beyond notions of wrongdoing and rightdoing. He said, It's not a place beyond morality, 
Rather, it's where our fractured humanity finds its most intimate connection to the divinity, to the deity. And an astonishing fullness is discovered within our deepest emptiness. Like stumbling into an open field in the middle of the dark wood, we don't get there because we've been following a map. We get there because of our life experience. The experience that brings us here is one of emptiness before it is one of fullness. We must first experience the holy otherness of God. W-H-O-L-L-Y, the holy otherness of God before we can experience the God within us. In the preface to his book, Lifecraft, Unitarian Minister of Forest Church writes, let me begin by telling you a little bit about yourself. And that always kind of makes me look at something sideways when a writer or somebody tells me, let me tell you something about yourself, like we don't already know. But anyway, maybe we don't. He said, to one extent or another, the following is true. So just sort of look at yourself. Don't look at the folk around you or the person next to you. Look at yourself for a moment. He said, you are self-conscious about your appearance. You feel guilty about things that you have done or failed to do. You sometimes have a hard time accepting yourself or forgiving others. You are a less than perfect parent of a less than perfect child. You have secrets which you might betray or which might betray you at any given moment. However successful, he said, however successful you are, you fail in ways that matter both to you and to your loved ones. Beyond all this, your life is stressful, your happiness is fleeting, and your health insecure. You worry about aging, sometimes dying. More than once, your heart has been broken by betrayal or loss. And however successful you may be, however deep your faith, when the roof caves in, you shake your fist at heaven or the fates or life itself. You beg for an answer to the question, why? Why this? Why me? And why now? You wonder what your life means. And when I read that, I said to say, how does Forest Church know all of us so well? Because he knew himself so well. It doesn't matter that he served a, a large church, had a brilliant mind, that he had authored or edited over 20 books. No amount of success, brilliance, or public published works exempt us from insecurity and failure, even if we're walking squarely on our life's path. What separated him from most people was the fullness of his gifts, not that so much, but his fearlessness in the face of shortcomings, his own shortcomings and those of others. How many of us have had the courage to face our emptiness, our inner emptiness from time to time, like this guy did? Can we imagine what it would be like to be free, free not of our faults, but free of our fear of our faults? And this is precisely what the gift of the dark wood brings to us in the gift of emptiness. One of the strange paradoxes of the gift 
of emptiness is that it appears to those still standing outside the dark wood as a put down of self-worth and self-identity. Yet the experience of those inside the dark wood is not put down, but a feeling of self-worth, not trying to be something that we're not, not trying to maintain our image that never was, a seemingly perfect life, but forfeiting those illusions, owning up to our emptiness, losing the life that never was to gain the only life that ever really matters. Is this something like what Jesus meant when he said, whoever tries to preserve their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. If we are to experience what it's like, what it means to be fully alive before we die, we must depend on a power far greater than ourselves to make the journey with us. In our places of greatest despair over ourselves and our abilities, we discover a presence who loves us beyond our imagination, a presence who chooses relationship over perfection. Life is not over, and it's just begun. The book of Proverbs makes the claim that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Some of you, many of you have heard that passage and quote it from time to time. But this fear is not the sword we think of, and it's not the sword that we often expect. In Proverbs, the word fear is best translated awe-struck reverence. It's this form of fear that we encounter when we lose faith in ourselves and put faith in the unexpected love, the love of God. How can we not stand in awestruck reverence before a divine presence who clearly sees our emptiness in our brokenness and our guilt, yet chooses to be in relationship with us nonetheless. Standing in this place is the beginning of all wisdom and all true understanding. What we thought would be the place of our greatest emptiness and most hurtful put-down proves to be the safest and most beautiful place in the world which to stand. Seen from this perspective, the dark wood gift of emptiness is one of the best gifts of all. It sort of pushes us into those sunny clearings in the midst of the dark wood. Beyond our constant calculation, those wide and sunny places, beyond our calculation of keeping score. Lord, how we love to keep score. Our calculations of what's right and what's wrong. And helps us to move into an authentic relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. In that clearing, we find that all our imperfections are still with us. It's just that we've lost our fear of them. They're not in charge anymore. In their place, we discover our humility, which is not about lowliness and put-down, but it's about value and worth and fulfillment. The word humble comes from the Latin root word humus, which means earth, which is also at the root of human. To be humble is to be of the earth. All humans are of the humus. So being humble doesn't mean that we try to cast ourselves in such lowliness that everyone around us seems superior to us. Someone who is of the humus is only lowly in respect to that which is above the humus, which is the divine, which is the deity, which is our God. 
And that makes all the difference. Think back with me to Moses for a minute, the children of Israel, the way they looked at him. Moses made lots of mistakes, lots of errors, questioned God, just very, very human. But one thing that Moses always remembered was below the humus and above the humus, and he would not bow down. He would not worship the Pharaoh. Pharaoh was of the humus, human, of the earth like the rest of us. But he bowed down only to God. And now in regard to the scripture lesson, which I've saved for this last part of the message, my focus really on verses 8 and 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are not your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Sometimes we try to make God's thoughts out of our thoughts and we try to claim a certainty that we really don't possess and that can be right dangerous. If we receive the gift of emptiness, does that mean that we've poured out, so to speak, our thoughts and ways in order to receive God's thoughts and ways? How do we handle this pouring out? How do we go through this process of emptying ourselves? Perhaps if we back up to verses 6 and 7, there's a little direction, a little few clues there. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he was near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he might have mercy on them and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. God does everything in abundance, not out of scarcity, not out of this we might run out so we better hang on to it tightly. God is an abundant God. And verses 6 and 7 stress the need for repentance and pardon. Wicked and self-righteous and self-serving thoughts will not be in any position to comprehend, even out of all the higher thoughts of God. Only as we repent and seek God's pardon and, and turn toward the face of God and open our eyes to the mind, to the ways of God, that we begin to comprehend on some level the mysterious accomplishment of God's word. And it's striking what sort of flexibility God is prepared to show with the word once delivered. Reversals of judgment. When we thought it was all figured out, we had it all down like it should be, promised beforehand or executed. Reversals of judgment. We thought it was one way. God said, no, no, it's going to be this way. Waters once rejected are offered again. Promises of a covenant with David are expanded beyond King David to all of God's people. Even David in his imperfection. And the former word has gone forth and undergone adaptations that no one could have ever imagined. Our thoughts are not God's thoughts, the prophet reminds us. And yet God's word, once spoken, once lived out, maintains a sure continuity through time. Accomplishing what God had planned originally when the word was spoken and delivered to us. All right, so how do we empty ourselves of all the clutter, whatever the clutter is that has accumulated in our lives. And this whole thing about clutter, I know, is, is a really popular thing right now. What's the name of that show with the woman who says, if it doesn't give you joy, get rid of it. And um, cleaning out the houses and the closets and all that works with stuff. It doesn't work with people, so I don't try it with that. But <laughs> if it doesn't bring us joy, just get rid of the clutter. <laughs> Get rid of the clutter in our hearts that we might be filled with God's way and God's 
life, God's thoughts. By prayerfully seeking the Lord God, by turning away from things that the Spirit is nudging us and telling us that's selfish and you might need to re-examine that. But as Christians, and especially as United Methodist Christians, we know it's all grace. Emptiness is a gift. And our primary response always is, or always should be, gratitude. We cannot work our way to worthiness, but God's made a way. We ought to be grateful. Now I want to bring this to a conclusion by reading a passage from Philippians. And uh, when we did the canticle, the responses a while ago, we covered some of this passage. But hear it again, if you will, from Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 4. Think about this whole idea of the gift of emptiness. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How will we know when we have fully embraced the gift of emptiness? We'll know when we stand in front of the mirror and we ask ourselves, who is that servant staring back at me? Amen.